0: diving into Mark chapter 4 where we have a series of four parables that Jesus tells to help us understand how the kingdom of God works What we're gonna do today is kind of skip ahead and look at a section that we don't often look at. It's it's Jesus' explanation for why do you speak in parables? Why don't you speak more clearly? Why is this sometimes confusing? That's the question that people were bringing to Jesus, especially his 12 and, and the other hangers on who stayed with Jesus throughout all his teaching. They wanted to know why are you speaking to us in these parables? Why don't you speak more clearly? And what we have in Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 12 is Jesus' explanation to us. So that's the overriding question. There is a, a, a note sheet where you can follow along. Take some notes during the sermon if you'd, if you'd like. Um, let's please stand as we listen to, to Jesus' explanation to us in Mark chapter 4. When he was alone, this is after Jesus began telling parables, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord Jesus, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on your people this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts might might open our ears and open our hearts to receive, to understand, and to believe your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts, let it all be pleasing in your sight, God. You alone are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but I love, I love parables. I, I love these short little stories that Jesus told, these earthly stories with, with heavenly meetings. I love parables. I, I love parables in part because at the very beginning of a parable it's really quite simple. A sower went out to sow his seed. Some fell here, some fell here, some fell here, some fell here, and then this is what happened. On the face of the parables, they're very simple. We, we can read a parable and almost immediately say, okay, that's what it means. I love parables because on the very face of them, they're often quite simple and straightforward. I also love them because they're, they're vivid, and they, they capture, I don't know about you, but they capture your attention. For instance, if I just start to list off parables, you'll probably start to know exactly what I'm talking about. The parable of the lost coin, and all of a sudden you have a picture of a woman running around her house, pulling sofa cushions off, digging, sweeping every corner to find the lost corn. Or if I say the parable of the lost sheep, you immediately have a picture of a frantic shepherd who's like, where's my sheep? Forget the 99, where's that one? Or if I say the parable of the prodigal son, you'll say, oh yeah. The son who abused his father's well slapped him in the face and came back for new clothes and a ring unworthy of every grace from his father. Right? Parables are, 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 I love them because they're vivid and they capture our imagination. You can close your eyes and imagine. You can imagine what Jesus is talking about. I also love them because there's, not only are they simple, but there's a depth to them. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend 10, 20, 30, 40, 30. Okay, we'll stop at 30. 30 minutes kind of unpacking these parables and we get to we'll say amen at the end and we'll say but there's more. There's a, there's a depth to the parables where we can kind of unpack them and pick them apart. But that's where I begin to struggle a little bit with the parables. I love them but I also dislike them. I struggle with them because they're a little they're, they're, they're the the meaning at least is sometimes elusive. I don't know if you ever feel like that when you read a parable, but you're like, Jesus, what do you want us to know? Jesus, next week we'll look at the parable of the sower. Jesus, do you want us to, to, to focus on the sower? Jesus, do you want us to focus on the seed? Jesus, do you want us to focus on the soil? Jesus, where do you want us to pay attention to us? At, at the seminary, I had a professor who said, there's, own, there's a tertium to every parable. There's, there's one main point that we're supposed to draw out of every parable and everything else is extra details that you really should kind of push off to the side in favor of the one main thing. But if you read our fathers, the fathers of Lutheranism even, they were picking apart the sower is this, the seed is this, the soil is this. They're picking every little part of it. And I'm just trying to figure out where the middle is because I'm trying to find out what does Jesus want us to know because that's the heart of everything. It's not about who's right and their interpretation method, but, but what does Jesus want us to know? And that's where I struggle because I want to know what Jesus is getting at. And sometimes the meaning is like grasping at straws. I don't know if you've ever felt that way when you read a parable. Jesus, what? The the people who heard Jesus tell these parables, his 12, you read that a minute ago, the 12 and then the next circle out, they were having the same kind of question. Jesus, what? You told us about us, that's what we'll read, we didn't read it today, but Jesus, you told us about a sower and some seeds and some soils and some thorns and some weeds and some birds and some fruit. Huh? Huh? Why Why are you talking to us in parables? Why don't you talk to us clearly so that we can understand? But it wasn't just the parables, was it, that people had trouble understanding? Just, just think back. If you have your Bibles open, this is why you should bring your Bibles to church so you can page around and check up on me. If you turn back in your Bibles, what's going on in the context? Jesus is sitting down to have fellowship, dinner, food with tax collectors and sinners, and people say, what? <laughs> They're confused. The meaning of Jesus eating with sinners is elusive, and they become troubled even when Jesus says, Matthew, tax, chief tax collector, come be one of my 12. They were confused when Jesus' disciples didn't fast when everybody else was. Jesus, What? How can your disciples not fast when John the Baptist's disciples fast? And, and then Jesus and his disciples, they're offended by this. They're, they're walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples are just, you know, you know how you are as a kid. You walk through the grain fields, if you ever do that anymore. You experienced folks, know what I'm talking about. You walk through the grain fields, and you just run your hands through the wheat, and you just kind of like close your fingers, and you pick up some heads of grain. And then, if you're really brave, you grind it up in your hands like granola and pop it in little snack for the road. Jesus' disciples were doing that on the Sabbath day and said, Jesus, your disciples are working. How can they do that? And then they're confused even more when Jesus heals on the Sabbath day. It's work. And remember how they dealt with it when Jesus was casting out demons? How does he do that? By the prince of demons? By, the, by Beelzebul? Unless you think it's just the opponents of Jesus who are confused by Jesus, Can you imagine how confused, maybe even troubled, his parents were, his mom was, and his brothers and his sisters were, when Jesus said, you know who my real family is? We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. You know who my real family is? It's people who hold my word, treasure my word, and put it into practice. They were confused. Jesus, what? What are you talking about? What are you getting at? Even Jesus' own disciples were confused by what Jesus taught and what Jesus did. How many of you have been confused by what Jesus does? It just doesn't make sense, does it? We, in Bible class, this always comes up. When there's a healing of Jesus, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. What? But last week, we heard Jesus tell the guy who had the demon possessed, demons kicked out. He said, go tell, tell your people. So some Jesus, sometimes Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. And sometimes Jesus says, go tell everybody. What? Can't you at least be consistent, Jesus? What, what I'm getting at is, is sometimes the, the meaning of Jesus, who he is and what he's come to do, and his teachings are, the meaning is elusive. And then you ask Jesus why, and he says that. Did you catch how troubling his answer is? It's rather troubling, and it's one of those sections of scripture that you just wanna like, boop. I, I looked into it. I looked into it, and I'm sure there's a really good rationale. I'm not picking on the people who choose the schedule of readings, but in, the, we, in, our, in our church, we follow a three year lectionary. It's a schedule of readings for each Sunday of the year. And I looked through the three year lectionary, and this, this account shows up three times in the Gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew is the one that's in our schedule of readings, and in the schedule of readings, you can look it up if you want. We read verses one to nine or so. Boop, get to the meaning. Now I'm sure there's a really good reason for it. Maybe it's just because of time, because it'd be like thirty verses. But we 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 skip over this teaching because it's hard. Did you catch it? To you. He's talking to the 12 and the others around him. To you, the secrets, the mysteries of the kingdom of God have been given. But to those on the outside, so there's an inside and an outside, I speak in parables. I speak everything. So it's not just these parables. It's everything. I speak everything in parables so that they can see but not make sense of it. They can hear but not comprehend. Otherwise, or to put it another way, so that they don't or in the Greek, lest, it's a negative purpose for you if you want to be nerdy, right? So that they don't turn for forgiveness. Jesus, what? L- let me make this plain. This is the first fill in. God's first move is never to harden. Let me make that very plain. When God came to Pharaoh, let me give you an example. When God came to Pharaoh in Egypt, his first move was not to harden Pharaoh's heart. God's first move in Egypt was what? Moses, go tell Pharaoh what I want him to do. God's first move was to speak. Through Moses, his representative, God's first move was to show Pharaoh who he was—that he was God alone—and that all of Pharaoh's gods and the Pharaoh himself were nothing compared to the one true God. That's what all the plagues were about. The, the, all the plagues—I know this isn't about the plagues—but all the plagues were about the false gods of Egypt and the true God of Israel, our God. God's first move was to show Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, "I'm God. Listen to me and be saved." God showed up again and again and again and again. His first move was not to harden. And then Pharaoh said, God, nah. God pushed, Pharaoh pushed back and rejected God. And so God, that's when we read in Exodus, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But he didn't do it by pouring liquid concrete down his heart. It wasn't quick-crete. God hardened Pharaoh's heart by doing the same thing he'd been doing. Speaking to him. Showing that he was God. See, God's first move is never to harden. God's first move is always to save. Same with Jesus, right? When Jesus comes, it's his first move to cast people out. No, Jesus comes to the people in the same way, he comes teaching and preaching. He's in the synagogue. That's his M.O. He shows up in the synagogue to preach and to teach, and then he hangs out in the town for a little bit longer. He shows up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He casts out a demon, and Jesus would have stayed longer, but the people wouldn't let him. But later on, Pastor Kruger mentioned last week, he comes back to preach and to teach again. He keeps coming. And the people, this is the problem. The The problem wasn't Jesus saying, I don't want you to believe. The problem is the people had hardened hearts and continued to resist and reject the word of God. They had a, Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians. He said they have a veil over their hearts so they can't see. It wasn't Jesus saying, I don't want you. It was them saying, I don't want you, Jesus. I don't want your word, Jesus. I reject you, Jesus. It was them hardening against him. And so Jesus finally says, fine, have it your way. It's a hard teaching. There's something we have to understand about ourselves. First, let's just let's do identity, right? Who are you? For in school, I'm a child of God, bought with the blood of Jesus. Let's pull that back, pull that out a little bit more. You are reborn by the Spirit. Your heart and hearts have been removed from you, so you have no longer a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, Ezekiel says. God's given you a new mind by his spirit. You love the word of God. You treasure the word of God, right? You love it. To you, this is what Jesus, Jesus is speaking to you today. To you, the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given. And then at the same time, there lives in you a sinful heart that still resists the word of God. See, God's first move is never to harden. But the first move of our heart, this is the next part of the fill-in, the first move of our sinful heart is always to harden. It's always to push back. It's always to resist. It's a miracle that you're here to saying saying, I love the Word of God, I still do. It's a miracle that you do. And yet the tendency still lives inside of you to push back against that Word of God. I know this is a hard message today. Let me show you a couple ways. We're prone to proof text. Let me explain what I mean. We start with a thesis. This is what I think about this. This is what I believe about this. And then we proof text. We find all the Bible verses to support what we think and what we believe and how we feel about something. We start with what we think and then we find Bible passages to support it. You know, you can do that with just about anything. If there's something that you want to do, something that you want to believe, look in the Bible and, and you can find it. It's going to be doing it wrong, but it's there. See, shouldn't it be the other way around? We start with what the Bible says and then draw our conclusions and our faith and our, and our understanding from what the Bible says, but we're prone to flip it. Start with us and our thinking and then bring the Bible up to support our thinking, rather than the other way around. Or, or we do this. We take a teaching that's hard, and we twist it. That's what I found when I was studying this text. There are, past, there are, there are interpreters who say, and, 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 and I, at first I found myself nodding, like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But you read it and you're like, well, no, that's not actually what Jesus said. Because we, we're, we're prone to take things that are hard and to twist them and to turn them to suit our own desires, or instead of twisting them, we just ignore them. I remember sitting down with a, a Christian pastor, and I, we were talking about baptism and infant baptism, and I, we were kind of having this lively debate about whether we should baptize babies. And we were talking about how baptism saves. And I said, Well, look at Peter. He says, baptism now saves you. And they flat out the answer was, Well, I don't believe that. Like, well, the passage is kind of clear. I didn't say, well, I did say that because I was kind of snarky back then. I still am. Right? Our tendency is to twist or to ignore passages and truths that are hard because our hearts don't like it. We're prone. To apply it to them, but not to ourselves. Have you ever been sitting there during a sermon, I've done this from the, when I'm preaching or getting ready to preach, where you're listening to a sermon and you're like, I sure hope they're here today. Are they here? Because they really need to hear this message from God. I've been sitting in my office at work and saying, I sure hope so-and-so is here today because I'm going to get them. I got my sniper rifle out. Not a good way to preach. See what I mean? We're quick to apply the word to everybody else, but slow to apply it to ourselves. One more. We're quick to, to hire our yeah, but lawyer. We're quick to say yeah, but. This is an extreme example, but I remember when all my friends were getting engaged and they were getting involved in extramarital things that shouldn't be getting involved in extramaritally, you know, sex, that kind of stuff. And the argument went like this. We're engaged, therefore in God's sight we're married, therefore. But God's word says, yeah, but. See what we do with the word? We take these things that, that are near and dear to our sinful hearts and we yeah, but them. We yeah, but whatever God has to say and there's always a yeah, but you've, ma- you've made the excuses. Yeah, but two wrongs don't make a right. I had every right to. Well. See what we do? Like this is what I'm, I'm trying to get at. I hope I'm showing you this that you can never be too sure of yourself. This is the fill in. You can never be too sure of yourself. And what I mean is, you can't be trusted. You can't trust yourself. When it comes to God's word and your life and your heart, you can never trust yourself. Your sinful mind that still lives with you and will live, you, live with you until the day that you die cannot be trusted. You can never be too sure of yourself but you can always be sure of Jesus and his word. That's the next part of the film. You can always be sure of Jesus. He's here with his word among us today. And his word is true. And his word is powerful and effective. Sometimes disastrously so. That's the one thing about the word that we never really like to talk about, that sometimes the word, true and powerful as it it is, works to harden and to push away. That is not the the word's primary goal. The primary goal of the word, the first move of God, is always to save and convert. But in the hardness of their hearts, sometimes the word works and people resist it and reject it and walk away from it. That's what Jesus is getting at when he explains why parables. But to you, to you, the secrets of the kingdom of God, the mysteries of God have been given. To you, the word is true and faithful and enlightening. You're sitting here this morning and I, and I hope you're not saying to yourself, boy, I sure need to get out of here because this is all wonky. I hope you're sitting here this morning saying, I need to shut off my lawyer. I need to shut off my yeah, but lawyer. I need to just let God speak because when God speaks, it's true and it's faithful and it's It's hard. Let's just admit to ourselves right now that as sinful people, we will never fully come to understand to all its depth what God's word means and what it says. And maybe we've been teaching it. I don't think so. I'm trying not to. We're trying not to. And I hope I'm not going to lose your trust right now. But we're sinful people and we get it wrong sometimes. That's why, that's why I'm so thankful for the Word of God because then we can lean back on that Word of God for what is true. We can start every sermon and every conversation and every, every discussion about what is right and wrong with what does God say. And then all our conclusions and all our faith statements, they fall right underneath that. God's Word is true. And God's Word Saves us and forgives us. To figure out what I was going to say again. It's in there somewhere. Sometimes when we think about the word of God, we talk a lot about it. Like information. Like this is what it means, this is what it says, this is how all these things connect and that's important and powerful and good. But the one thing I want you to grasp at this moment is that the word of God is not just for information's sake. It's for transformation's sake. The word of God that you hear, it actually does what it says. When when Pastor Krieger and I say, or or anybody else who's, who's absolving sins of the congregation, forgiving sins of the congregation during the service, when we say, in Jesus' name, I forgive you, we're not just telling you that you are forgiven. In Jesus' name, we're actually forgiving you. The Word of God in that moment is actually doing what, it's, what we're saying. And when you take and when you eat, we're not just remembering God is actually doing something. He's forgiving you. He's making us one. And when water is poured On anyone's head. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God's doing something. That is not just a rite of the church that's kind of cute. It is kind of cute, but it's not just that. It's way more than that. God is actually saving and forgiving and cleansing and clothing. See, God's Word, you can so be sure of Jesus because His Word is true, because His Word saves and forgives, because His Word changes. This is why I wanted to include verses 12 and 13 of Isaiah. Because it talks about the word of God being coming like rain and snow coming down and doesn't return without making the earth bud and flourish, so it yields fruit for the seed. I want you to notice if you ha- have your Bibles open, verse 13. Notice what happens. Instead of the thorn bush, will grow. I'm gonna get these where on because I'm doing it by memory. Instead of the thorn bush, Will grow the juniper. Instead of the briar, the myrtle will grow. So when God's word does its work on you, it's not just making you a better version of the sinful self. He's not just taking a thorn bush and then kind of like sanding off the edges of the thorns so you're not quite so abrasive anymore. He's not just taking the briar bush and putting some roses on it so you look pretty. He's not making a better version of thorn bushes or briars. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, instead of the briar will grow the myrtle. Something new is happening. Transformation. Not a better version of, but something brand new. And what God does through his word, through baptism, through bread and wine, through preaching, through teaching, through hearing, through reading, what God is doing is making a, a new you in the image of his son Jesus. More and more every day, giving you the mind of Christ, pouring out his Holy Spirit on you so you can have a better understanding of what he means, so you can have a clear understanding of what his word says, so that that by the Spirit, even when it's totally foreign to us, we can say, okay, God, I don't get it, but I trust you. I don't understand these verses, but you said it, so okay, God, you're God, I believe you. we're just getting started in these parables and and i I guarantee you they're going to be hard i gave pastor Krieger the really hard ones um because they're they're there some of them are some of the parables in mark chapter 4 are kind of challenging uh you can read them read them later on you can figure you'll figure out quickly what i mean but this is god's promise to us and because it's god's promise it's our promise to you that as you hear as you read as you meditate on these words of God, difficult as they sometimes are, God will bless you, and God will change you, and God will open up your eyes so that you see, and open up your ears and your mind so that you understand. Because to you, the secrets, the mysteries of the kingdom of God have been and will continue to be given. Amen? Now the God of peace grant you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Amen.